Is this amplifying? So welcome, everyone, to this uh, first morning seminar. The title of uh, the talk will be uh, A Secular Religion. And I hope in this um, reflection to, to clarify a bit what I mean by the word secular and also what I mean by the word religion. For some people, the very concept, a secular religion, sounds like an oxymoron, a bit like a military intelligence or a jumbo shrimp. The two, <laughs> the two words don't necessarily sit easily together in our culture. In fact, very often when matters of great import are being discussed in a public space, there will be a religious voice invited to speak, a Christian or Jew, a Hindu, Muslim. And then the moderator will invite a secular response. And this is a division, I think, that marks modern society, certainly in the West, uh, quite deeply. And yet I feel that it may in fact be a false and even a somewhat uh, harmful distinction, a, a barrier to communication, to understanding, an unnecessary and a confusing division so a secular religion, and obviously as a Buddhist, I'm going to be thinking of this question in terms of the Buddhist tradition and how it is coming to terms with modernity. Buddhism in many ways has been catapulted into the modern world. It hasn't, as it were, grown up alongside modernity in the same way that the Christian and Jewish traditions have. Until 100 or even 50 years ago, Buddhism existed in Asian cultures that in many ways were still sealed off from the developments of, of modern thinking, and institutions, the growth of scientific understanding, and so forth and so on. But first I'd like to 
think a little about what we mean by tradition, which is, I think, another term that's rather central to this discussion. I said the Buddhist tradition. The philosopher uh, Alistair MacIntyre, who some of you may have heard of, he's an American thinker, alive today, um, has said that a living tradition is one that is in constant conversation with its past. In other words, a living tradition is a form of dialogue. It's something that is engaged with something that pre-existed it. In the case of Buddhism, this goes back to the 4th century BC, 2,500 years ago. And in what sense can we say that this tradition, this tradition is still animated by an ongoing conversation? I suspect for many of us, when we read, for example, a, a discourse in the Pali Canon or the Heart Sutra or whatever it may be that's revered in a particular school of Buddhism, we don't find ourselves just passively accepting that what is in that text is true and I somehow have to come to an agreement with that. I suspect there's often an element of tension, even conflict. We find some parts of that teaching still speak to us in a way that engages us, that affords us insight. And other parts of the same text even, we find ourselves resisting and saying, no, that can't be the case. Or I don't agree with that. And so we enter into um, a kind of conflict. Another way that MacIntyre speaks of a living tradition is as one that embodies continuities of conflict. In other words, this tension, this disagreement and agreement is precisely what animates a living conversation and in that sense keeps the tradition alive. Now by contrast, a tradition that is not living, a tradition that in some senses might be dying, is one that would be more concerned with preserving something from the past, with not seeking in any way to change it, but to somehow maintain it and to conserve it as it already is and as one believes it has, it has been for centuries. Now I think here we can already see the sort of distinctions that we refer to when we talk about fundamentalism on the one hand, and maybe what we might call a liberal approach on the other. A fundamentalist is basically saying this text was dictated by God, or was spoken by the Buddha, and you and I have no business at all questioning it, let alone tampering with it. A more liberal approach would see that every text, every teaching has emerged out of conditions, historical conditions, cultural conditions, economic conditions. It reflects certain biases of the authority figures and is thereby to some extent contingent. There's nothing really fixed, there's nothing really final that has to somehow be preserved. As a friend of mine pointed out once, the only things we preserve are things that are already dead. Apples, peaches. We stick them in uh, syrupy liquids and thereby preserve them. 
But again, I think the important thing is not to sort of start taking sides in this sort of debate, but to open the mind to be able to reflect and to to consider the complexities that are implicit within any tradition. Now, in my own case, I feel that what has been central to my practice and to my understanding uh, of the Dhamma has emerged through a number of key conversations with historical figures within the Buddhist tradition. In the first instance, I spent uh, about five years working very closely with um, a text called the Bodhicharya Avatara, the guide to the Bodhisattva's way of life, that I translated from Tibetan when I was a young man in my 20s. It was, in fact, the way that I I learned uh, classical Tibetan. I'm sure some of you are probably familiar with this text. Who, who, who has read it or is familiar with it? Okay, not that many. Um, it's still in print, published in India. In any case, what really engaged me about the Bodhicharya Avatara was that unlike many classical Buddhist texts, the author speaks in the first person. He speaks as I. He uses the I. And he talks very much in what we would probably call a confessional voice. Uh, He doesn't pretend to be enlightened or perfect in any way. He acknowledges his own failings. He acknowledges in a very psychologically astute way, his own contradictions, how he aspires to these great spiritual values and yet finds that in the next moment he does the opposite. Maybe we're familiar with this. In other words, he recognizes the the struggle that... I think for many of us, if not all of us, somehow lies at the heart of this practice. We aspire, for example, to sit still for 45 minutes and just pay attention to the breath. But after about two nanoseconds, (laughs) the mind goes off on some crazy tangent. So... What I loved about Shantideva was that it was, it was his extreme humanity and honesty. Whereas pretty much every other text I've studied, um, certainly in the Indian Mahayana tradition, um, is abstract, rather um, remote, and very impersonal. You don't really get a sense of a living human being behind those words. With Shantideva you do. And it's that sort of text that allows a real conversation to start taking place. And I think in many ways, um, through the example of Shantideva, I found my own voice as a Buddhist writer. I think in a way Shantideva gives permission to bring yourself and your struggles and your confusions and your own understandings into the narrative rather than pretend that you are a detached philosophical spiritual voice. The other conversation that has been very central in my own, uh, in my own history uh, has been that with Nagarjuna, who again I suspect most of you have heard of, if not read. Unlike Shantideva, Nagarjuna is not at all personal. 
you don't get a sense very clearly of the human person behind the words and the verses, and particularly of the text that I translated called the Mula Madhyamaka Karika, the, the verses from the center or the verses of the middle way, which is actually very, uh, very subtle. It addresses what it means for things to be empty. We'll come back to this topic. But it does so in a rather impersonal way. But nonetheless, and this time I spent three years working on 420-odd verses. Nonetheless, you do enter into a conversation, a debate, a dialogue, a dialectic. More recently, and by that I mean the last 20-odd years, my conversation has been with this person called Siddhartha Gautama, in other words, the Buddha, and entirely through the body of literature we call the Pali Canon. So in some respects, my journey through Buddhism has gone backwards, starting with the later Indian Mahayana works, going back to Nagarjuna, who actually, although he's considered a Mahayana philosopher, in fact, I think, is trying to recover the spirit of the early teachings of the Buddha. And it's through those conversations that I found myself in conversation with the Buddha himself. Now the Pali Canon, as I'm sure most of you are aware, um, is not um, easy to read. It consists of hundreds of discourses. Shantideva's book is only 900 verses, Nagarjuna's 400. If we were to add up the pages in the suttas and the vinaya, in other words the discourses attributed to Siddhartha Gautama, and the Vinaya are the monastic training texts, it comes to something like six or seven thousand pages. Okay, there's a lot of repetition. Let's say four thousand pages. <laughs> but it's still an awful lot. And again, we tend to read these things and we, we read through the suttas very religiously. But often the mind kind of goes numb after a while. What I found very valuable is taking uh, particular passages, maybe a sutta here, a sutta there, and really going into them carefully. And I go back to the Pali, I try to produce my own translations, I try to get as close as I can to the language. And I found that this conversation which is one that is ongoing and I suspect will not end before I die, possibly the most rich and um, engaging of all the conversations I've had. We'll come back to this point, but the Pali Canon for me is not just a single voice. It's not one monotonous voice speaking to us, but it is multivocal. There are many different strains and strands and styles in which you start to hear different voices coming alive, different lines of speech, different currents of ideas, different perspectives. And as I go into these texts, what I try to train my ear to hear is what I would call the secular voice. I'm going to explain a bit in a minute what I mean by secular. And that's what I've tried to put together in this uh, anthology that I'm compiling which you can download from our website 
and which will be the basis for pretty much everything we look at in the coming days. What I've called the Pali Canon source texts for secular Buddhism. So in other words, I'm trying to highlight and single out a particular voice that runs through the canon. Now in doing that, um, I'm not claiming that these texts are those that um, embody what the Buddha really said and what he really meant. That would be to slip back into a sort of fundamentalism. I don't think we could ever we, we can ever re- fully answer that question. But what I do think is of great value and great richness within the Pali Canon is precisely its diversity and its multiplicity of voice, which I think is what enables um, new ways of talking about the Dhamma to be able to emerge in different times in history, for different cultures, for different audiences with their own particular questions. What I'm interested in, therefore, is not trying to pin the Buddha down to get what is really essential, but rather to engage in a conversation and to see what emerges. I feel that every Buddhist tradition that we are exposed to today is one that has emerged out of a similar kind of dialectic. In other words, when the Tibetans engaged with the Mahayana and the Vajrayana texts from India, what emerged was Tibetan Buddhism. Likewise, when the Chinese engaged with the Mahayana Sutras and other texts, what emerged was Chinese Buddhism. And although the rhetoric of the Buddhist schools will say this is what the Buddha actually taught, from an historical perspective, we see that these forms and these uh, uh, discourses, Chinese, Tibetan, Thai, Burmese, are all conditioned arisings. They emerge out of a conversation that took place during a certain historical epoch. And it's in this way, I think, that the tradition continues to live. It's the outcome of this conversation, a kind of dialectic in the Hegelian sense that generates something out of a thesis and an antithesis. Now, I also have to acknowledge that this conversation is not just a conversation between Stephen Batchelor and the Buddha, but it's a conversation between two cultures. That the, the, the Buddha's voice, the Buddha's teaching, emerges out of a set of conditions and circumstances that flourished in 4th century BC India in the northern Gangetic Plain. That the Buddha was not and could not have simply been teaching in a vacuum. And yet sometimes that seems to be suggested that Siddhartha Gautama one day becomes enlightened and then he just speaks from his enlightenment as though that's all that is needed in order to say something. That it's not possible, I think, realistically, for anyone, however enlightened they are, to speak um, independently of the conditions of their world. To some extent, the Buddha or Christ or Muhammad are creatures of their time and place. They're also revolutionaries because they, in a sense, overturn many of the presumptions and beliefs and views that prevailed at their time. In other words, they too were in a conversation, a dialectic with their own society 
their own communities. On the other side of the dialogue, the, my side as it were, I'm fully aware, or perhaps not fully aware, if I'm really honest, that my own experience, my own sense of who I am, is one that has been formed out of the Greek traditions that have given rise to our scientific and philosophical uh, schools of thought. I'm also aware that I'm formed by the Judeo-Christian tradition, even though I was not raised as a Christian, but as a humanist. But nonetheless, I can't pretend that that um, particularly uh, Protestant Christianity has not had a deep influence on how I think, on how I make my moral judgments, on my sense of right and wrong. Often people are attracted to Buddhism, like myself, uh, as a kind of reaction against one's own culture. And you run off to India at the age of 19 to find the truth. And the West is dismissed as this sort of ghastly, materialistic, capitalistic, corrupt, benighted society. But that's really adolescent romanticism, I'm afraid. I'm also aware that I'm, I mean, to be more specific, I'm informed in my thinking and my sense of who I am by a particular currents within Western thought, uh, particularly those of uh, phenomenology, existentialism, which in a way go back to Nietzsche and the death of God. That that too is part of what forms me. I've also had uh, an analysis in Jungian uh, psychotherapy. That too has played a role. So in other words, although the conversation that I'm engaged in with the Buddha is, a, is an intimate one, a very personal one, it's also one that is a, an instance of something much bigger than me, that is somehow I'm a representative of a culture, a tradition, and perhaps therefore some of the things that I I, I write or, or say, might also speak to your condition. And the other thing is that um, this is an approach that I would very much hope all of us may be able to engage in in a way that's peculiar to our experience. I certainly don't want you to just turn what I say into another orthodoxy. But if anything, I would hope through the discussions we have and the talks that we give and the meditation that we do, that this is somehow empowering for each of us uh, in terms of our, our practice to find our own conversation with the past and to arrive perhaps at conclusions and insights that do not agree with what the people sitting up here might say, but launch us on into our own uh, journey of, of discovery and understanding, which of course is one that is not purely private, but one that is also part of our engagement with a community, in this case the, the temporary community or sangha of this retreat. Let's hope that we're able by the end of this week to have got some feel of being engaged in a, a project that somehow unites us. While we're on the subject of, um, of dialectics, in other words, dialogue, exchange, 
I think one way to get to what religion means is to think of it as a dialectic between a question and a response or an answer. A friend of mine, um, who's an Anglican theologian in England called Don Cupid, has said that um, religion or religious are terms that refer to our attempts to come to terms with our own birth and death. Attempts to um, reconcile ourselves with the fact of having been born and inevitably being subject to death. I found this a very useful way of, 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 of understanding what it means to pose a religious question or to embark on a religious quest. And I don't think we have another term in our language that quite does the trick. To come to terms with, to reconcile ourselves to our existence as human beings. This is not a psychological approach. It's not a philosophical approach. Perhaps we prefer to use the word spiritual, but I'm still rather ill at ease with that word. I'm not quite sure what it means. I do think the term religious works best here. And my religious life is the one that springs from these core primary questions of existence, these existential questions. And this brings us quite, quite naturally into a dialectic that is right at the heart of the Buddhist tradition. And that is the dialectic of awakening, the dialectic of enlightenment. I prefer the word awakening for reasons that I'll explain. If you recall the, the legend or the myth of the young Prince Siddhartha. Here we have a story of a young privileged man who grows up in, in a palace or palaces, is somehow immured from any encounter with uh, the darker, tragic side of life, is given all that he can enjoy, and is trained to become a powerful leader of his people. But one day, or it seems actually on several days, he begins to ask, well, what's going on outside this privileged existence? And this leads him to, um, to take journeys into the countryside where in spite of his father's best attempts to sort of clean everything up, he meets a sick person, an aging person, he sees a corpse, and he sees a wandering monk. And on each of these occasions, supposedly, he turns to his charioteer and says, what's this? And the charioteer says, that is a corpse, sire. And then Prince Siddhartha said, and this, is going, and this is the fate of all of us? Charioteer, yes, sire. <laughs> now, this, of course, is legend. It's just not credible as history. Even though Buddhist tradition has tended to treat this legend as though it were historical fact. It's not actually there in the Pali Canon at all, except in one passage where it refers to some mythical Buddha of the past, but it's not ever related to Siddhartha Gautama. But that doesn't matter. In fact, I think the power of this story lies precisely in its mythic language. And that is because mythic language is a way of talking about the human condition rather than giving us historical information about Siddhartha Gautama. All of us, I suspect, 
can relate to that story. I suspect all of us have had moments in our lives when the, the questions of our existence have suddenly become paramount. Things we can't ignore anymore. Of course, it doesn't mean that we have literally not been aware that we might get sick or we're going to get old or we're going to die. We know that as a given. But there are certain moments in our lives when it's more than just knowledge, but it becomes almost a, a threat, a challenge, um, a shock to wake up to the reality that we're in. And we begin, perhaps for the first time, to ask certain questions, not of an intellectual nature anymore, but questions that are, as it were, coming from our guts, coming from our heart, coming from our body, this overwhelming sense of our own frailty, our own mortality, and perhaps the most difficult thing to really embrace fully the fact that one day we will just not be here anymore. Now, these sorts of questions are what, in Buddhist tradition, impelled the young prince to seek some resolution. In other words, in, in Don Cupid's language, to come to terms with his birth and death. And I don't think we can really understand the idea of awakening or enlightenment unless we understand it as a resolution, an answer of some kind to these primary questions. That the two are not separable. Awakening is an awakening to a, um, an authentic and real and, and deeply realized response to the questions of birth and death. Now, it's at this point, I think, that we can begin to differentiate between religion as a deeply human impulse that leads us into a certain quest and that hopefully resolves itself in some kind of awakening, as opposed to religion that has become institutionalized, has become a power structure, usually governed by monks or priests, and that is in the business not of asking these questions, but of preserving a certain set of answers. And you, you could perhaps um, define religion in that sense as um, historically uh, historical institutions that embody a set of answers to the questions of birth and death. But those answers... I think quite uh, quickly cease to be living responses and they become dogmas. They become fixed beliefs and views and opinions. That after death, you will go to heaven or you'll go to hell. After death, you'll be reborn according to your deeds committed in this and previous lives. That an enlightenment means having direct, non-conceptual insight into the nature of emptiness. Enlightenment means understanding the true nature of mind. And these uh, statements, these answers, in a way become more important as something to believe and then to accord your own experience to, rather than responses to the question of birth and death. Of course, it's in practice rather more ambiguous and complicated than that because often these 
teachings and beliefs and doctrines and dogmas do help us come to terms with our own existence. So it's not black and white. But I do think it's helpful uh, to note the difference between a religious question, which is existential, and religious answers, which have a tendency to become fixed beliefs and dogmas set in institutions of power which are very often allied to certain political state structures and authorities in the world. And again, I don't have to tease that out much. I suspect we're all aware of that. Now, one of the reasons that I uh, went from the Tibetan tradition to the Zen tradition after having been a Tibetan Buddhist monk for about seven years and having trained in a very orthodox, somewhat scholarly school called the Gelukpa was precisely in order to get back to the primacy of questioning rather than learning what the right answers were. A friend of mine went to Korea and um, brought back a book which was written by the teacher, the Zen teacher I subsequently trained under. And on pretty much the first page of that book, Master Kuzan described the practice taught in, in his monastery as the practice of great doubt, the practice of great questioning. And that's all you did in this training. You simply sat for three months in the summer, three months in the winter, facing a wall and asking the question, what is this? As the week proceeds, Martin will introduce that practice, probably on the fourth or the fifth day of this retreat. And I found this immensely um, engaging. There was nothing I wanted to do more than face a wall and ask, what is this? <laughs> Maybe it's not everybody's cup of tea. <laughs> but at that time in my life, that was really um, uh, a wonderful opportunity. Now, unlike uh, in some of the Japanese traditions, you, the idea is not to get the right answer and then go on to another koan. In, the Zen in Korea, they say, if you answer one koan, you've answered them all. And in fact, there's only really one koan anyway, and that's you, your life, your birth and death. That's the, all the other koans are just skimming the surface. They might be helpful in awakening that koan or that question of your life, but once you connect with the question of your life, you don't need the words of any Chinese koan anymore. And also, it's the kind of question for which there's not some final answer. It engages you and enters you, and, en you, and you enter into a practice that is more grounded and informed by an ongoing and ever-deepening questioning, one that brings you far closer into a sense of the sheer mysteriousness of being here at all, rather than arriving at some hypothetical certainties or conclusions. And a very well-known uh, little verse that summarizes the, uh, what this practice is about runs, great doubt, great awakening. Little doubt, little awakening. No doubt, no awakening. And what this implies is that the, the quality or the feel of your insight or your understanding, your awakening, correlates to the quality or the feel 
of your questioning, of your doubt. In other words, your insight is going to resonate at a similar pitch to the question that you posed in the first place. If you ask and pose a philosophical question, then that is already setting the, the frame for arriving at a philosophical answer. If you, however, pose a question, as they say in Zen, with the pores of your skin and the marrow of your bones, which is what we're supposed to do in the, in the Zendo, then that sets the frame for what one might call an existential answer, one that also reverberates in the pores of your skin and in the marrow of your bones. So the quality of questioning is intimately tied to the quality of the response. So again, we go back to the Buddha's own story, this existential shock of sickness, aging, death is the point at which his quest begins and the point or the quality of which his awakening occurs. It's at the same pitch. It's in the same deeply embodied understanding. I found this very, very helpful. Now, another element of this is that an established religion, is, and even Zen, which I'm afraid has become an established religion, insists that Uh, it has the right and the true answers to these kinds of questions. And if you fail in your practice to arrive at similar conclusions, then you clearly haven't done enough practice. Whereas a living religion, I feel, encourages you to become independent, autonomous. The word the Buddha uses is aparapachaya, independent of others in the teaching. And that's a quality that um, is given to the person who has entered the stream, entered the path. So if we start with our own uh, primary questions and we remain true to those, then the insights, the understandings, whatever it is that we gain, will be more, as it were, a discovery of our own autonomy, our own ability to tread this path and reap its fruits that we know for ourselves, rather than arriving at a conformity with what the tradition teaches and insists on to be the truth. And again, in Korea... I greatly um, admired and respected my teacher, Kuzan, but he was also fairly dogmatic. He had some rather clear ideas as what the what awakening was all about. He was also, though, a very good teacher in encouraging this kind of inquiry. So in some senses, I, I found myself bracketing out his... His, te- his uh, more doctrinal teaching and focusing just on the primacy of this kind of questioning. So whatever we do, I feel that we have to somehow be aware of, the, of our craving for certainty, our craving for security, and also aware of the seductive authority of those who claim to know the truth. And to try, in contrast, to 
remain alive to one's own, the questioning of one's own life. And although I've been talking in terms of Zen meditation, I feel that the practice of mindfulness, the practice of awareness, is really very much about the same process. That when the Buddha teaches meditation, he doesn't give us some sort of absolute truth to aspire to and to realize, but instead he turns our attention onto our breathing, the sensations in our body, our feelings, our mental states, our emotions, our thoughts, and then finally to the totality of what is going on right now. That is where we ground attention. In the total experience of what is changing, of what is dukkha, we'll come back to that rather tricky term, and what is anatta, an experience that cannot be reduced to anything that is essentially me or mine. In other words, the sheer uprising and vanishing of events, inner events, outer events. In other words, this is his portal, his way into coming to terms with our condition as human beings. It doesn't require that we believe in any kind of transcendental truth, any unconditioned or deathless state, but rather we engage totally with the condition we are in now. And that leads, I think, almost inevitably to a, a, a curiosity, a wonderment, an astonishment at what is taking place. And I would hope that through what we say up here and how you apply that in your walking and your sitting practice, that that's the kind of, of perspective that gets opened up. An ability to um, be quite profoundly affected by the simple fact of being alive. Knowing that that changes, that it won't last, that there's something tragic built into that experience, and that it's not anything you can hold on to as me or mine. And that, I think, is that the heart of what we call vipassana, this kind of intense seeing, profound looking. And that's what we're going to try and cultivate during this week. So we need now, I think, having sketched at least one way of looking at the word religion, what do we mean by a secular religion? I was once invited by a Muslim college in Cambridge uh, to attend a conference in which people of faith would come together and issue at the end of the weekend a declaration of faith as an attempt to stem the tide of godless secularism. <laughs> I don't quite know why they invited me. But in any case, this was many, many years ago where I certainly was not using the word secular. But by the end of that conference, I came away realizing that I rather liked godless secularism. <laughs> I found myself kind of at home in that. And I don't mean that in a trivial, jokey sort of way. On the one hand, I th secular does mean, and we would be naive to reject that, it does mean an opposition to a certain kind of religiosity. But, having, but I would distinguish between the, re the deep religious impulse and the institutions of religion, which tend to be rather, or tend towards dog, dogmatism and certainty. For me, a living secular approach is one that is, in 
some conflict with the institutions of religion, but is not necessarily in conflict at all with the deepest religious impulses. And so in that sense, I can think of Buddhism as a secular religion. But the other meaning of secular, which is perhaps more important, is the very literal meaning of the word. The word secular comes from the Latin word seculum, which means this age. Um, In French, you get the word siècle, this century, this time, this place. So a secular approach is one that is concerned with applying the insights of, let's say, Buddhism or Christianity to the conditions of our time and place. And I think a very good example of the world picture of our seculum is the image of the planet Earth as photographed from the moon or from space. This is an image that has become iconic in our culture and one that perhaps many of us can remember seeing for the first time. This would have been in the 1960s. Just a quick look round the room. I suspect most of us (laughs) were sufficiently um, adult to have um, been struck by that. And I think the reverberations of that photograph um, are still working themselves out. We, of course, knew that this planet was one tiny body orbiting a star, as the gentleman said yesterday, uh, in a galaxy of 400 billion stars, and then there's billions of other galaxies. We knew that, but in a way, seeing it live, in that beautiful image, somehow brought that home in a more visceral way. Now this, I feel, in a way, has become the the koan or the question of our life, in a, not in a personal, but in a, in a collective, in a communal, in an almost biological sense. It's a very different world picture to the one that Buddhism has traditionally inhabited, one in which the earth is flat and is the basis of all life and the sun and the moon go round it and you are born here for a short period, then you get reborn according to your karma, which is a much more sort of domestic sense of the universe suddenly we find ourselves in a universe that seems impossibly vast and also, in some senses, rather terrifyingly inhospitable. You have a famous statement of Pascal, I think, where he says, the the, the vast spaces of the stars terrifies me. This view of the world not only opens up the, 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 the infinite voids of what appears to be a universe with no other forms of life as far as we know, although statistically it seems likely that there would be, the chances of our ever having communication with it is quite unlikely. But what it also shows up is the extreme fragility and beauty and vulnerability of life on this earth. And I feel that that awareness, which of course now is becoming more and more urgent because of the potential disasters that we might wreak of this world, on this world, I feel is also very much at the heart of a secular approach. In other words, an approach to the Dhamma that is of this seculum, of this century, of this time and this age. 
I feel that the implications of that world picture have not really been integrated into a contemporary Buddhist understanding. We'll come back to that um, and similar uh, elements of what I've sketched in this first talk um, as we proceed through the week. And of course, we'll have an opportunity in the afternoon to bring our own understanding and our own reflections and questions to bear on these same themes. But that's where I'm going to end this morning. And now we have um, uh, a period of 45 minutes for walking meditation. Um, Please enjoy the beautiful landscape um, outside and around us. Hopefully it will remain sunny uh, for the rest of our time here. And also please uh, respect the silence that we have, um, we're trying to cultivate together. Um, silent, uh, talking is very contagious. So it's not just for yourself, but also to enable others likewise to appreciate the qualities of mind that um, a silent environment can bring. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.